All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope the uh, tacos were good, and, and thanks for being here on a Saturday morning uh, on this balmy, very warm <laughs> Saturday morning. It's, it actually is very nice to me. So uh, yeah, actually, Minnesotans, what we do is we just know how to wear the right kind of clothes. So it actually is cold without a nice winter jacket on. All right. So yesterday we really focused on faith formation. Remember, I had a why question. Why is just faith formation hard? And I want to continue those thoughts today with a little bit of a different why question. And our why question is, why change could hurt? Why change could hurt? We seem to have an assumption that we need to change and that change is always a good, but it could end up being a potential problem. So for some of us who have been around conversations about the church and the future of Protestantism for the last 20 or 30 years, um, the last 20 years, 20 years ago, um, in the early 2000s, if you were in a room like this and you said the church needs to change, probably only 30% of the people in the room would agree with that. Um, and others were like, you know, no, everything is fine. We've entered into a very interesting point. Almost everywhere I go across uh, the country, everyone now in every room I am and in agrees that the church needs to change, that the way we do faith formation needs to change. Everyone finally agrees, and yet something crazy has happened. In the midst of that consensus, all of a sudden, no one knows what that change should be. And in many ways, people feel pretty despondent on how to do that, that there's no energy to make the change. Now, let's make an assumption that you won the lottery and you got Taylor Swift tickets. And they are great Taylor Swift tickets. They are front row Taylor Swift tickets, and you didn't even have to pay $500,000 to get them. You know, like, you have great tickets. And then the morning before the concert, and you're a major Swifty, so you are ready to have a religious experience at this concert. And the morning you wake up to go to this concert that you're looking forward to, you have the flu. It would be very, very bad reasoning for you to think to yourself, my gosh, these Taylor Swift tickets gave me the flu. That would be very bad reasoning. You would just think this is unfortunate, unfortunate situation. We have this great night planned and I get sick the morning before that. This is, I think, how most people think about this moment in the church right now and in Protestantism, that here now we have everyone who agrees that we should change and no one has the energy to make the change. But I think actually maybe our views of change are getting us sick that our very views of what it would be to change and what to do to do faith formation a different way are actually making us sick. And the Germans have a word for this. The Germans call this Zeitkrankheit. All right, now last night I told you that philosophers' quotes have tryptophan in them. Most definitely German words do. Anyone who puts a German word on a board, you're just like, oh, yeah, I'm exhausted. Um, but the Germans have this great advantage uh, with their languages. They can just throw a couple words together and make a whole concept. And this is exactly one of these. These social theorists talk about what it might mean for us to be late modern people is that we might have what they call a time sickness, Zeitkrankheit, a time sickness. Now, what would this time sickness be? It's actually caused by our late modern times in the continued acceleration of our late modern times. And that acceleration comes in three different ways. The first is that we've just seen an acceleration. We feel this, an acceleration in our technological reality, that we just feel like technology is continuing to accelerate. My guess is if we did family feud style, like what are the three forms of acceleration, you would all raise your hand and say that there has been an acceleration in technology. I mean, the phones we hold in our pocket, I mean, it's just amazing to think about that the computing power that put 
men on the moon, there is exponentially more computing power in each of our pockets right now than we're on that Apollo moon mission. Um, and there's a whole thing called the Moore's, uh, the Moore's Law, which is that microprocessing power was supposed to, what, double every 18 months or something? I think that's finally stopped happening, but for decades, that just continued to occur. We feel this kind of technological acceleration. Um, but it's not just our gadgets, our phones, but we feel it in, in multiple different sectors. The German social theorist who works on this, Hartmut Rosa says, Technological acceleration is the intentional speeding up of the goal-directed goal processes of transportation, communication, and production. So transportation, communication, and production seem to be going faster and faster. Or we demand them, even if they're not happening. As I was just talking with someone, air travel is actually slower now than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So that transportation is going slower. But they've never advertised that to us. And they keep on telling us that at least they'll get us through security faster and faster. So we all want to go faster, want technology to make things speed up. But we see this just drive towards a good, towards transportation, communication, and production um, speeding up. Now, when that happens, something interesting, when we feel that, when we feel that there is an acceleration of transportation, communication, and production, it leads to a certain existential crisis for us human beings. And one of the things that tends to happen is we start worrying about our brains. We start being frightened that our brains are going to fry. Now, I don't know, many of you will remember this. Some of you maybe are too young to remember this. And if that's the case, we all hate you for being so young. Um, but many of us remember news stories like around 2005, 2007. Remember like New York Times, 60 Minutes were running stories that said by 2025, by 2020 even, most of us would have brain tumors. Remember that? There are all sorts of stories. The idea was that your cell phone was going to give you a brain tumor. Um, and people were very worried about most of us, at least there's supposed to be an epidemic of brain tumors by this time, and it didn't happen. Uh, maybe it didn't happen because the science wasn't quite right. Probably one of the reasons it didn't happen is because no one realized that in 2007, a little company in Northern California would create a phone that no one would ever talk on again. You know, when the iPhone comes along, no one no one ever holds the phone to their ear anymore. Now we all just need a chiropractor from looking down texting. Um, but Apple creates a great phone. No one talks on it yet. Um, but it's interesting that when this speed up happens, when a speed up in communication happens, we start to worry about our brains. And that's actually a rerun. Historically, that's a rerun. When the passenger train came about at the end of the 19th century, there were news stories where they had interviewed doctors, and doctors were saying that they did not recommend they weren't sure what would happen if you got on a train. They were not sure it was safe. And this is what the story said, which I find just really funny and interesting. They said they cannot guarantee that the human brain can handle going, get this, over 25 miles an hour. They were afraid that if you got going over 25 miles an hour, I mean, essentially, like an exponential speed beyond what a horse could go, they weren't sure that your brain would hold up. Now, I am not a math major, but I'm pretty sure Mach 6 in a fighter jet is faster than 25 miles an hour. But you see that when we have this huge leap forward and we feel this acceleration, we start really worrying about our brains. Connected to the train, which I find fascinating, is that it wasn't until 1883, which seems really late to me, but 1883 that in this country we standardized our clocks. It wasn't until 1883. And what I mean by that is we didn't get the 
time zones, the four time zones in the continental US until 1883. And we didn't standardize our clocks to say somewhere like Dallas and Austin were on the same clock. It just didn't matter before that. It didn't matter if it was 12.15 in Dallas and 12.30 in Austin um, because you couldn't go fast enough for that really to matter. So it really didn't matter. And in every city across the country, when the sun was at the highest point in the sky, it was noon. Um, but now there's only a few cities across our different time zones where it gets to be noon when the sun is at the top. You had to standardize clocks because now you had passenger trains and you had to make sure that say Dallas and Austin were on the same clock. So you see how time impacts us and how transportation and communication and production starts to change the way that we live in the world. Now, what I think this does to our kind of imaginations is it tends to say the kind of change we need. This acceleration in technology tends to say the kind of change we need is more and more availability. So even when we think about the changes we need to make in faith formation, we're looking to create ways to have more and more things available to us. Now in my family, we've made a decision um, that's been an expensive one, but to bundle all of our streaming services with Apple has a, like a bundling service called Apple One. I don't know if you know about this, but it was a great deal and then they keep raising the price every six months. You know, like we got in at 28 bucks and now it's 38 bucks and what are we supposed to do? Uh, but it's a, you get, all their, you get all their stuff. So you get Apple TV and you get Apple Music, which is basically like every song ever recorded you can now stream. Um, you get uh, Apple Arcade, which is all of their video games. Oh, and you get Apple News, which is access to 100 newspapers from across the country in 50 magazines. You get their cloud service. And of course, you also get Apple Fitness, which is access to the availability of 50 of the greatest uh, workout people across the world that you can just tap into immediately. I, I start to feel incredibly guilty that we have the availability of all of this in no time to actually use it. And this becomes the new epidemic that we can, that we face in this accelerated time, that everything is available to you for the most part, that everything's there. You all have the availability to all the great Russian literature. It's all there and very cheap. You could all just go onto a website and, and read it. You could listen to all of Mozart's, um, all, of his, all of his ever re recorded pieces. You could listen to them all. But who has time to? Um, that we start to feel the guilt of not having enough time, that we have to accelerate to be able to actually take advantage of all this availability. Well, this clicks us forward. We usually tend to stop at just that we felt this acceleration of, um, of the technological, but it's not just the technological that's accelerated, that we've also seen an acceleration just in our social lives. Now this makes sense. If we've seen an acceleration in communication, transportation, and production, then it makes sense that we would also feel a, those are fundamentally social realities. How do you be a human being without transportation, communication, production? It would impact our very social lives. But what I mean by this transition in our, our social lives is the very norms we use, the very ways we talk, have been under an incredible accelerated amount of change. 
the ways that we used to say things that used to be a fair way to talk, that now has started to change. Our very moral frameworks and our norms have quickly changed. We've seen an incredible acceleration in just how we negotiate our social space over the last five or 10 years. And it's been really hard for churches as they negotiate people who are at different speeds when it comes to the so social life. How do you talk about these things? How do you have a congregation where maybe people are at different speeds of the social change and hold them together? Most other places in society, you just niche out. You just get in the niche of the people who agree with you and you just stay there. But we've seen that congregations have, have a really hard time, but a necessary of kind of how do you hold this together as people are at different speeds. So way into this to think about how this, this functions, I want you to think about this as a decay rate. And to get, your, to get a handle on this, I want to just take a step back and think about how technology itself decays. So this is how these social theorists will talk about social change even. So a decay rate is the amount of time it takes something to no longer be of the present. How long does it take something to no longer be of the present? So again, thinking of your computer or uh, your phone, how long does it take your computer to no longer be of the present? Well, we know it takes three years. Apple will not cover your computer if after three years it breaks. You bring your computer in to an Apple store and it doesn't work after three years and they'll look at you and say, get a new computer, Grandpa. Like, you know, like, why, why should we fix this old computer? You, they'll, they'll fix it. You just have to pay a good amount of money to get it fixed. I was in a college town right before the pandemic, and I was in a coffee shop, and it was packed. And it was one of those coffee shops that, you know, is, uh, the ceiling was undone. It had a very industrial look with a, with a very smooth, hard cement floor and very good coffee. And there was nowhere to sit in this place. And I luckily got a seat right towards the barista at the front. But there was nowhere to sit, and everyone was talking. And this young woman came in, looked like maybe a sophomore in college, and she had a stack of books in her computer on top of the stack of books. And she got her coffee and she grabbed it and then she started to look for a place to sit and you could see it. And I had the perfect view of this, but I could not help her. You could see the computer starting to slide off the top and she was looking and it slid and she tried to like catch it in her lap and it went down and it landed hard on the cement floor, boom. So loud that everyone who was chattering in the coffee shop <gasps> looked and it went completely silent. And I had so much respect for her because she just had so much dignity and was so cool about it. And she set down her coffee and she addressed the whole coffee shop and she said, don't worry, everyone. It's OK. It's just an old computer. And everyone was like, oh, OK. And they went back to talking. But I looked at it as she picked it up, and it wasn't like an Apple II or something. I mean, it looked like it was maybe four, five, six years old at the most. But that's an old computer. Over three years, it's no longer of the present. Same with your cell phone. How long does it take your cell phone? Two years. Your cell phone is no longer of the present if it's two years old, that it has decayed. It's no longer um, of the present. Um, a typewriter probably takes a lot longer. Uh, to decay, you know, maybe five, ten years, or you go back 50 years, a typewriter took a long time to decay and not be of the present. I don't know if any of you watched the PBS uh, Ken Burns documentary on um, Hemingway, on the Hemingway documentary, and of course, classic Ken Burns style, when he would s switch scenes, you'd get the still picture 
that would move. And it would always be of Hemingway's typewriter. And we know where all Hemingway's typewriters are. They are in a museum in the Florida Keys. You can go visit them, and they can tell you which typewriter he wrote which book on. My guess is if we called up Stephen King right now and asked him where are all the computers he wrote all of his books on, he'd have no clue. He'd have no idea where they are because they just change so quickly. They decay and you get a new one. So you see how this works, this decay rate of no longer being of the present. Well, this starts to happen with our social norms, the ways we talk, the ways we think about big institutional structures, maybe even the way we think about gender and sexuality, that it starts to change. And some people start to talk in certain ways that feel like they're no longer of the present. And then people that feel like they are of the present will tell those people that the way they talk are no longer of the present. And you know what? No one resents more being told that they are no longer of the present. And it starts to lead to huge forms of attention. And it can just feel like for a lot of people that they would like to be affirming and they would like to say the right words. It just feels like just when they figured out one way to talk, it's changed so quickly. How do we keep up with this? So you can see this particularly, this has happened, another example of this, to get us into our social norms, has happened with this little TV show called The Office. Do you guys know The Office? You look like all Office, Office fans here. So The Office um, has not been on for a while, but still, if you go on an airplane, and you walk to the bathroom and back, I guarantee you, you will see 10 or 15 people watching reruns of The Office. It is a major show still in our cultural zeitgeist. And it's really fascinating that when, a, uh, when Peacock came about, which is the NBC streaming service, they had informed all the other streaming services that had NBC properties that when the contract was up, they were taking these properties back. And this became a very big deal for Netflix. It was like the first dent in Netflix dominance in the market because it was something crazy. I don't have the numbers memorized, but you can look at a New York Times article on this. That's something like 32% of all Netflix streams 10 years ago, five years ago, were of The Office. Just a huge, huge percentage of their streams was of The Office. And more interestingly, those, the people who were streaming it were all 18 to 35-year-olds that would stream The Office. And they started to interview these young adults, and they would say that they just, when they come home, they just put on The Office. The Office is always just streaming in the background for them. It's just always on. One of these young adults who is always listening to The Office is the pop star Billie Eilish. I don't know if you know Billie Eilish, um, but Billie Eilish, Eilish the, the Grammy-winning um, uh, pop star, she said that she's just always watching The Office. As a matter of fact, in her winning um, album, she if you listen to it, which some of you look like you are listening to it all the time, um, <laughs> if you listen to it, there's a few little bits of The Office actually in it, like three little transitions where you hear pieces of The Office. So when she won the Grammy, they inter uh, the reporters asked her, why are there these pieces of The Office in it? Why did you do that? Why did you put that in your album? She said, well, the reason I did is because when my brother and I were making this album, we just always had The Office on, all the time. It was just always on in the background. And she said, as a matter of fact, whenever I'm home, I'm just always streaming The Office. And they said, well, why? And she said, well, I just find it soothing. And she said these words. She said, The Office is my therapy. It's just a therapy to me. And then she said this that made 
me, my soul, leave my body a little bit. She said, you know, the thing about the office is it just, it feels, it just feels so soothing because it's just like a picture of a world that doesn't exist anymore when times were so much simpler. And I was like, um, weren't they just showing new episodes on that? Like made me feel very, very old very quickly. But her point was, the office is soothing because it's a picture of a world that's no longer here anymore, that we've accelerated socially beyond it, and there's something soothing about just taking in and watching an artifact from a world that's no longer here. And they actually asked Steve Carell, who plays Michael Scott, if he would be part of a reboot of The Office. I mean, it makes sense. Why wouldn't Peacock have a reboot of The Office with all these people streaming the reruns? And they asked him, and he said he wouldn't, said he would not be part of a reboot of The Office. Now, the real reason he wouldn't be part of it is because he's a big movie star now, and he doesn't need to be on a sitcom. But what he said to the reporter was fascinating. He said, no, I would not be part of a reboot of The Office, and the reason I won't is because I just don't think Michael Scott's jokes are appropriate anymore. Now, that's fascinating. I would make a bet with you that if you went home and watched three episodes of The Office, that you will laugh out loud. I mean, it is funny. I also bet if you watch three episodes, you will laugh out loud and go, I don't think you can say that anymore. I don't think you can make that joke anymore. And that's not that long ago. But you see that social acceleration that's occurred. So it then leads us to think the kind of change we need to have inside the social uh, acceleration is just more and more accessibility. The kind of change is just to level things and let more and more people um, be involved. That we are doing good change when we not only have more and more availability, but when we have more and more accessibility. Part of the issue with this, of course, is it means we try to need to make things as smooth as we possibly can. And it's amazing how addicted we are to smooth things. There's a Korean-German philosopher named Bayung Chul Han who's written this incredible book talking about how we are addicted to the smooth. We love our phones because they're smooth. We, left, we love Jeff Koons sculptures. You know Jeff Koons sculptures? These are these sculptures you maybe have seen in the Getty, which he has a huge one that's worth $15 million. That's just a glass smooth balloon dog. Uh, maybe you've seen this, and people will go and take selfies with it all the time. And Bayung Chul Han, you may love it, but Bayung Chul Han thinks it's absolutely disgusting. And he thinks it's disgusting because it reveals this sense that we love things smooth, what we love surfaces, that we have a hard time with depth, and we have a hard time with edges, and we have a hard time ultimately with negativity. I will get on an airplane at 3 o'clock, and the one thing I'm wishing for is for things to be smooth. But his point is, when you become a society obsessed with the smooth, you lose otherness. You really can't have an encounter with otherness because you want everything smooth. This has happened across our society. Democracy is in peril because we want everything smooth. We don't want the negativity of actually having to talk to people who disagree with us and have to understand why they don't agree with us. That's very hard for us. We want everything smooth because smooth spaces are accelerated spaces. You can go faster and faster and faster, and that tends to be a high good. So accessibility has its advantages, but it also can speed us up and make us demand that we get rid of all the seams, that we get rid of all the negativity, that we get rid of all the otherness. And without otherness, the kind of formation you have is not very deep at all, and you lose the transcendent quality that's necessary that we talked about last night.
So this moves us to the third one. And the third form of acceleration is just the acceleration of the pace of our lives. I don't know about you, but it feels like this to me, that it just feels like the day-to-day pace of life keeps going faster and faster. Now, at one level, you would think if there's been an acceleration of technology and if there's been an acceleration of our social norms, if there's been an acceleration in the technology that are supposed to be time-saving devices, I mean, most of Silicon Valley innovations are are supposed to be time-saving, if that's happened, and there is now this kind of open space for us to just express our identities and receive affirmation for those identities, it should feel like the pace of our lives slows down, that we should have more time. Um, I mean, all these time-saving devices and all this freedom to express ourselves, we should just have more in more time. But of course, it doesn't feel that way in any sense. It feels like things just keep going faster and faster. Now, maybe the best example of this is the way email works. I mean, email is a good example because we all just are dealing with email. But you could think, if I could write a script of an alternate universe, you could think that email um, saved us. That in some sense, you could imagine that in every city across the West, maybe across the globe, that you would go to it and there was a statue of an email browser because email changed our lives. I mean, think about this alternate history. In 1995 or 1996, email comes along. And let's say before 1995, you had a job and you had to do correspondence for that job. You had to write letters. And let's say you had to do five to seven letters a day. So you needed to block out two hours of your life, probably, to do those seven letters. I mean, you needed to write the letter or have it dictated, then have it typed out. Then you would have to have that printed and and put on company letterhead. Then you'd have to get an envelope, and you'd have to address that envelope. You'd have to get postage on it and get it in the mail. So maybe those five to seven letters took you about two hours to do. Well, then this thing comes along called electric mail. And how long should it take you to do seven emails? I don't know, 20 minutes? 30 minutes max? There it is. Since 1995, each of us have had an extra hour and a half in our lives. Since 1995, we've all been exercising. We've had an extra hour and a half. We walk in nature and feel more connected to the world. We've all been eating right since 1995. We have a statue up because we have whole generations who spent more time with their parents because of email. You know, they got read to all since 1995. Thank God for email. We've all had more time in our lives because of that. All right, you know that's a completely alternate universe. It doesn't happen that way. And it doesn't happen that way, not because it doesn't take 30 minutes to write seven emails. Well, what happens is when this supposed breakthrough happens is it creates new conditions for us. And the kind of conditions it creates is not giving you more time. It actually, what it provides you is the opportunity to do more actions inside your unit of time. So now inside of your unit of doing correspondence, that two hours, you're not getting seven letters. You're not getting seven emails. You are getting 47 or 57. And now inside those two hours, you have to find a way to write 40 or 50 or 60 emails. And that's hard. That's almost impossible. You can't get all your email done in just one two-hour block. So you say to yourself, I know what I'm going to do. I am going to take my tablet or my computer or my phone to my son's swim meets. And I'm going to do email while all those other kids 
are in the pool swimming. They can drown. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna just. I'm gonna just do email. I'm only gonna stop doing email when he's swimming, and that you just watch us. And then you realize after six or eight years of swimming and you doing email while you've been there that you've never really been there that you don't really remember any of the swim meets. So we even have this kind of sense that the multitasker becomes good, and yet the multitasking seems to pull us out of our lives um, in this kind of hurried way to do more actions inside of our unit of time. So we tend to think in this that the best kind of change is more and more attainability. How can we attain more, more and more reach? How can we do more and more actions? How can we attain more and more actions? Now, the big problem with this, seeing change as availability, attainability, accessibility, living inside these accelerations of technological acceleration, of social acceleration, of the acceleration of our pace of lives, is it has the effect of starting to alienate us from our own lives that we can feel like things are going so fast that like the swim meet, you don't even feel like you're ever really there. And that can create an incredible spiritual epidemic. I think it can create a spiritual crisis. And no one can speak of a spiritual crisis better than the onion. Do you know the onion? The spoof news. So here's an onion story that was, uh, it's a few years old, but it's still just so funny. And so here it is. Man on the cusp of having fun suddenly remembers every single one of his responsibilities. All right, so if you haven't ever seen or read an onion story, you know that they take very benign things and then act like it's hard hard news, you know, like a, a story. So I'm going to have this read to you. Listen to this. I think this is very funny, and I think it also points to a huge um, spiritual uh, issue that we face in, in, our, in our time. According to sources, Platt tried to put his responsibility-laden thoughts out of his mind and loosen up by opening another beer, but suddenly remembered a magazine subscription that needed to be renewed by Friday a medical bill he thought might now be overdue, and the fact that he needed to do laundry by tonight or he would run out of clean socks and underwear. Who made this guac, said the man, who almost left himself to take pleasure in the beautiful evening with his closest friends before he let his brain become consumed with thoughts about how he needs to move on from his current job but is putting off the work necessary to make the transition. It's delicious. While the barbecue's host chatted with Platt about how excited he was to see the upcoming Superman movie, sources confirmed that all Platt could think about was the fact that his recently married sister was coming to town next weekend and was supposed to stay with him, which reminded him that he needed to clean his apartment, which reminded him that he needed to buy extra bedding for his sister to sleep on, which reminded him that he needed to make an after-work trip to Bed Bath & Beyond, which reminded him that he would be tired after work and wouldn't want to go to Bed Bath & Beyond, which reminded him that he also needed to go to the grocery store because his sister would think he's irresponsible if she saw his empty refrigerator, which reminded him that he and his sister aren't as close as he'd like, which reminded him that his parents already had a house and two cars by the time they were his age, which reminded him that he's been with his girlfriend for over five years and that while everything was going fairly well, he felt overwhelmed by the prospect of marriage and the mounting pressure to propose. Yeah, Man of Steel looks good, said a smiling Platt, who was only thinking about how he graduated from college over 10 years ago and still owed $86,000 in student loans. Can't wait to see it.
Accounts confirmed the man nearly convinced himself that all of his responsibilities would be taken care of in due time and that he should just relax when a friend mentioned a recent road trip he had taken with his wife, which prompted Platt to mull over the fact that he still needed to renegotiate the lease terms of his 2010 Jetta, a task he was delaying until he had a fender bender repaired. In addition, Platt began thinking about the number of open envelopes on his kitchen table, some of the contents of which he remembered were actually important and should be rechecked before he throws them away. Hey, I have to get going, said the man, who could barely recall anything that anyone at the gathering had said the entire evening. Just a couple of things I need to get done tonight. This was great, though, he added. All right, you hear it. I mean, that's a spiritual epidemic that most people... Maybe most of you. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, it is very hard as a late modern person to ever be where your body is. Here I am standing up here talking to you, and I'm also kind of thinking, okay, my flight leaves at 3. What time should I be to the airport? Uh, wh- what do I have to do Monday? How, do I, how, do we, how are we going to figure that out? And Maisie's got to be here. Like, we're always off in somewhere else. And you can think about entering into the sanctuary tomorrow for worship. Most people sitting there are just like this young man. They're somewhere else. It's very hard for us to be where our bodies are, and that is a spiritual epidemic. It can go so fast that you start to feel alienated from your own life. Here he is at a barbecue, and he doesn't even feel like he's actually really there. This acceleration is a kind of time sickness. It takes us out of our very lives. So it has the effect, I think, then, of also moving us into think what, thinking of what stabilizes. What stabilizes our institutions? What would stabilize the church enough that it could be a real space to do faith formation? The way we tend to think about what stabilizes is that what stabilizes is growth. Growth is what stabilizes. This is what Hartmont Rosa calls dynamic stabilization. And what he means is, across the West, every institution, for the most part, the church included, is only perceived to be stable if it is growing. If it isn't growing, it's not very stable. Hence why every politician across the Western world runs primarily on, vote for our party, we can grow the economy. That our country is only stable if it is growing. Our business is only stable if it is growing. Our church is only stable if it is growing in resources and relevance. That we have to keep growing. Now, that has its advantages, but one of its disadvantages it has is that once you get on that growth reality, that growth engine, you can never get off of it. So it works like this with dynamic stabilization. Let's say you have a company, and some of you know far more about this than I do, but for a lot of companies, if you're not growing, you don't have a future. And if you're even growing at 2 3%, do you really have a future? You need to be growing at closer to 25 and 30%. And if you can get over 30%, then you're investable. You need to keep growing. But the way dynamic stabilization works, Rosa says, is let's say, let's say your church or your ministry that you're looking at, let's say that it has grown 30% this year. Well, what you can't do in dynamic stabilization, what the very kind of moral codes of it will not allow, is you can't say, well, you know what? We grew 30% this year. You know what we should do next year? We should just slow down, put it in a different gear, and let's just grow at 5%. Because then after two years, we'll still be 25% up. No, no, it 
doesn't work this way. The way dynamic stabilization works is if you grew 30% this year, you need to grow 31%, really more like 35, 38% the next year, and on and on it goes. You can never stop this. And while it could have its advantages, its disadvantages, it's very, very easy to get burnt out in a system, to burn out very quickly. Um, that we can find ourselves at a kind of alienation that leads to a deep sense of, of burnout. So maybe another way to think about this, the way this functions, is Herman Daly, who used to run the World Bank, used to have this equation, and I actually don't speak mathematics, but this makes a bit of sense to me. He used to say that the way that our, our larger kind of Western world works is that when we, when we think about, say, um, the, the way we have to invest money, that we think money plus commodities equals more money, equals money primed, that that becomes very important. And some of you who work at a university understand that this even filters its way into the university, that there's a certain equation that plays um, like K plus R equals K primed, like knowledge plus research equals more knowledge, that that's the point. You have to prime it. You have to double that. You have to keep growing that. And I always tell people the way you can see this is if you watch college football or college basketball because uh, it's a deal with the networks that the university gets a commercial in the first half and second half and almost every university commercial is this equation K plus R equals K primed so you'll hear the University of Iowa where tomorrow is happening today the University of Wisconsin, where it's a new breakthrough around every corner. The University of Kentucky, where knowledge is turned into the best tomorrow. It's always this sense of getting more out of it. Now, I think when it comes to our, our church world, we have something like this, M plus P equals M primed. Members plus programs equals more members. Um, and that we feel like that becomes the measure of what is a good church, what is a good faith formation program. How do we prime that M? I actually know of a church in Kansas City that realized, I mean, this was more tacit in the back of their minds and the front of their minds, this equation, but they realized they had a problem, that they would not be able to prime the M. And the reason they would not be able to prime the M wasn't because of the conditions of their community or the ability of their pastor to preach the gospel. The issue was the parking lot. They could not get people out of their parking lot in less than 20 minutes. So what they decided to do is do a capital campaign. They raised $15 million. And they used that $15 million to uh, work the levers of the government and in to put some money in to getting an off-ramp built right from the freeway to their church. And they were able to get people out of the parking lot in 11 minutes. And as far as I know, it primed the M. That's a very different vision of what would make a church good, of what it means to live um, into the gospel. But we can feel this pressure. We then also maybe, maybe in the church world, it's not just M plus P equals M prime, but maybe also R plus R equals R primed. Maybe it's resources plus relevance equals more resources, or maybe it goes the other way. Relevance plus resources equals more relevance. But what we're missing, a lot of churches think, is more resources or more relevance, and we will be a good church, and we will have the kind of change uh, that we need when we can get more of this. Now, there is something to all this, but there also is a deep problem, is that if you start living inside of these equations, you can very quickly burn yourself out. 
you can burn out a whole church. And it can lead to a deep level of despondency. So there, I wonder if the issue that Protestant churches face, and even a church like yours that is uh, really doing so well and in many ways is seeing growth and things like that, if the danger isn't that you could easily slide into becoming a depressed church. So I was in a congregation just before the pandemic uh, in South Dakota, beautiful Lutheran church. They had just put a, a, a built a wing onto the church, walked through that new wing. They had a fireside room with leather couches in there. They had a new youth room. Um, we walked down to new nursery school, and the kids were everywhere in this nursery school. Walked to the narthex of the, of the sanctuary, and on the poles outside were just flyer after flyer of different programs and events they had. And then the senior pastor walked me to his office, and we walked down a long hallway, and on the doors were, you know, associate pastor, associate pastor, uh, minister of music, children's director, preschool director, middle school pastor, youth pastor, and on and on it went with all this staff. We sat down in his office, and I was just overwhelmingly impressed. Like, this is an amazing church. And the pastor looked at me, and he said, yeah, it is. This is a, an amazing place. And then his, sh his shoulders dropped, and he said, it's an amazing place. It, it, it is. But I got to tell you, we still have over half um, of outstanding bill on that new on that new addition. And, you know, I've tried everything in this church. We've tried every kind of framework to think about what it would mean to live well together. And, you know, these are still the Dakotas. People still show up on Sunday mornings. But besides that, just people, they just don't have the time for it. They don't have the energy for it. He said, if I had to describe my church in one word, he said, I would describe us as depressed. We're just depressed. And he didn't mean that individuals in the church are depressed. He meant as a collective, they just felt like they were depressed. And this is part of the ep epidemic that comes from this time sickness of going faster and faster, is it can impose this sense of despondency on us. And some really important work has been done in Europe particularly, and there is a, a French uh, sociologist who's written this book, and in English it's titled The Weariness of the Self. And it, what it is is a genealogy of depression which is really fascinating. If you, in philosophy, a genealogy is kind of looking at the big changes that have happened and the ideas that have changed the way we see ourselves and, and, and the way we see the world. So he's looked at the way that modernity, the, the modern project, always has created and imposed a kind of mental illness upon society. So before the modern period, you may have somebody who was acting very strange, and there were oppressive ways people dealt with them, but there was also a deep sense that that person who was under the bridge saying those things could be an angel. It could be Jesus Christ, that you had to respond to this person. Once you enter into a modern age, we have a sort of medical diagnosis of that person, and that person has madness. They are out of their mind. They cannot correlate with reason, and therefore they are a problem. And he says that we have that for a while, but then into the 19th century it, sh it shifts, and the major kind of form of mental illness that we name and lift up socially is a form of hysteria. That it's being hysterical becomes the big issue, and it's primarily an experience that women have. And, of course, if you know anything about Sigmund Freud, you know that Freud is a young doctor who is assigned 
to the hysterical wing of a Parisian hospital, and it is his job to do rounds with all women who have been hospitalized for having a hysterical episode. And you can imagine in a Victorian kind of age where the public-private divide is so strong, and then say you lose a four-year-old, but you're supposed to go into the public space and have it all together and be proper. And then you're at a dinner party, and you break down, and you cry, and you cannot stop crying. What they do is they hospitalize you. They put you in a hospital. So Freud started interviewing those people, and he realized that these women had these deep stories um, that they were living out of, and he birthed psychotherapy through this experience. But through the 19th century, it was really hysteria into the 20th century. Ehrenberg's point is that after 1970, the issue that we really face as a society um, is not hysteria, but it is depression. That depression becomes an epidemic that we deal with. And he thinks that this epidemic um, has a lot to do with how we view the self. And his French, the direct French uh, title is really much more captivating. So if in English it's the weariness of the self, in French it is the la fatigue d'être soi. The la fatigue d'être soi. The fatigue of being yourself. The fatigue of being yourself. And he thinks this epidemic of depression, what it is, is it's the necessity as a late modern person to keep performing, achieving, doing more, advancing. It's living in a society that's based not on shoulds, but coulds. So what I mean by that is we used to live in really should-based societies, and they could be oppressive and a problem. Like, you should obey your parents. You should follow the Ten Commandments. You should do what your ancestors told you to do. For the most part, you can still find that some places, but for the most part, we don't live in should-based societies anymore, but we live in could-based societies. So like I was saying last night, the burden we feel like we bear isn't that we should do this. The burden we feel we feel like we bear is that we could have. You could have done something better with your life. You could have got the degree. You could have started the small business. You could have, you could have, you could have. And Ehrenberg's point is when you live with this deep sense that you're always performing yourself, that you are always in the midst of achieving and you're always competing all the time with everyone, and when you're living under the could, that when you run out of energy, when you run out of the energy to can keep changing and changing to perform, to keep trying to grow in some way, to get more, when you run out of energy, you find yourself in a point of despondency. And he thinks this is really where the reality of depression comes, is that it's just people who are exhausted from the way that they have to keep performing themselves. So I think maybe the issue we have as a church is the la fatigue d'etre a guise, that in many ways a lot of our churches are just too fatigued to be church, that this becomes a huge spiritual issue that we face, and the way we view what counts as change really impacts how we then move into this, and it could have this ramification of making us quite depressed, um, making us have this zeitkrankheit of a time sickness. So Ehrenberg says this, and there's a picture of him. He looks far more Parisian than his name sounds there. But he says, depression appears not as a pathology of unhappiness, but more as a pathology of change. That is a really fascinating, fascinating quote, I think. So this becomes, I think, the, the, the real issues and the real problems um, with the ways we even think about change in the context of the church. 
So what do we do with this? Well, part of the issue is that we're going to need a very different way of acting, and we're going to have to build our faith formation imaginations on a very different form of action. If the action is acceleration, do more. If we keep having to have actions to feed dynamic stabilization, to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing, then eventually it will create the very opposite of what we want. But we're going to have to have a very different kind of form of action. And one thing that will help us, but it will not solve our problem, but would help us is if we could find ways to slow down. That would help, but it won't solve the problem. Um, this becomes part of the issue. So Hartmann Rosa, who I've quoted a few times, uh, he, his first thesis was really about this acceleration. So he became known in the German press as the slowdown guru because he kept talking about how fast our lives were. And so the German media would interview him on you know, Sunday morning politics shows and he would talk about this and then they would call him the slowdown guru. And he started to feel very uncomfortable with be calling, be, being called the slowdown guru. Not because he didn't think slowing down would help, but he thought that this problem is so insidious and is so everywhere that just slowing down will not solve it. That we need something deeper than that. And we all know this because we have imposed in our lives certain slowdowns that don't really seem to work. I, know, I mean, if you think about this, it's true. Like, supposedly the weekend is supposed to be an imposed slowdown. And for most of us, and especially if you have kids or grandkids and stuff, the weekend doesn't feel like a slowdown. It just feels like a different list of to-do things. And sometimes you feel like you need a weekend from your weekend. It just is so busy. Well, okay, maybe, maybe that's unrealistic. But your vacation, that's supposed to be a slowdown. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I go on vacation for like 10 days, and right around day four or five, all of a sudden I start getting haunted by the end of my vacation, and what's particularly haunting me is the thought, the thought, the horror of my inbox. What is going to happen when I go back to work and I open my inbox and all of a sudden I have hundreds and hundreds of emails. My first two days back in the office, I'm just gonna be doing email for like nine or 10 hours a day just to get back caught up. And you start to feel like on your vacation, maybe I shouldn't even go on vacation. Is this worth it? I don't wanna spend three days back in the office just doing email. Or you can do what I do, which is a very bad thing, is you cheat on your vacation and you think, I'm just gonna pull my computer out every night for an hour and I'm just gonna get my emails down so I don't have to deal with that when I get back. Or if you're very wealthy and you know, you're someone like Mark Cuban, you just bring your assistant with you and make them do your emails while you're playing golf. If that's you, that's great. But you have to figure out some way to not get buried in these emails. So even vacation doesn't really work as a slowdown. Or some of you know this far better than I do, what's supposed to be the eternal vacation? Retirement. You're supposed to retire, and then there it is, that you're slowed down forever. And some of you, I'm sure, have done it well. Others of you got three weeks into your retirement and were like, I think I need to start a new business, um, that you just couldn't slow down, that it becomes very hard. And people have certain existential crises when they move into this. So just slowing down won't do it. We need a very different form of action. So this form of action that I think we need to embed faith formation in is what um, Rosa calls, and I, I've tried to build off, he calls it resonance. That yes, we have all these experiences where we feel like we have to do more, we have to keep going, we have to perform, but we also do have these experiences where we feel spoken to, 
where it doesn't feel like time accelerates, but it feels full, that, that it, we feel spoken to. He says part of the issue with the acceleration and then the despondency or the depression can come is that you start going so fast that you don't even feel like in the onion piece you're alive. Like the live wire between you and the world feels like it's severed. But we all do have those experiences where we see a piece of art or we spend time with our grandchild and it just feels like time isn't playing us, but we're in it. It feels full. You can sometimes feel tired, but you're not sure how much time has even passed. That we do have these experiences where we feel the world resonates with us. All right, now it's a little slippery what we actually mean and what I actually mean by resonance. So let's, let, me tell you, let me tell you a story maybe that illustrates this and then show you a video clip that I think highlights this. And, and then that can take us into kind of thinking about this theologically and, and biblically. Um, so I had a friend uh, who was a pastor of a Presbyterian church. And the church was in a, a difficult position, a very difficult position. There was a lot of conflict across the church, and um, they were going to have a session retreat. And he was afraid that someone was going to get murdered in the session. Like, they, they had so much conflict. He was just really worried of what was going to happen. And they had business that they had to get done. But he knew if they just did business with how much conflict was in this session, that someone, someone could get stabbed. So he uh, decided he needed to do something. So he decided, he heard this at a, some pastor's conference or something, some exercise. So he did it. He put up four chairs, and then he took four other chairs, and they faced the other row of chairs and asked people to sit in them so they would be sitting knee to knee across from somebody. And on one side, he put a notepad and a pencil. And what he had people do is sit across from each other knee to knee, and then they would spend two minutes, two minutes in silence, just looking at the face of the other person. And then the people with the notepad would spend another two or three minutes just sketching the face of the person across from them. And then after those five minutes, he would say switch, and they would do it. They would change seats and do it with someone else. This went exactly how you would imagine it went. People felt very uncomfortable. They sat down. They couldn't even look at each other. And yet they started to kind of giggle, and they started making faces with each other. And it went on for about 20 minutes. And at the end of it, it seemed like it really worked. It seemed like it kind of broke the tension, that there was some levity with the group, that it seemed like it brought them together. So he debriefed it. And he said, so what was this experience like for you all? And people said, you know, Pastor, this is weird. This is the weirdest thing you've ever done. But yeah, yeah, it, it, was, it was good. And he was thinking the threat of murder was way, way lower now. Like, this is exactly what he wanted. Well, this session had two people in it that I think are in every church. Um, no pointing fingers. But that this, I think every church has these people in it. And uh, in this church, one of them was named Jody. And uh, Jody was about... 35, move, maybe moving towards 40. She had stumbled into the church during a job transition, and she was just always upbeat, always willing to give a hand. She was just filled with smiles and a positive attitude. During a pastoral transition, she saw the congregation through. They had a beach service every summer, and she would pay out of her own pocket for this. She was just incredibly outgoing and positive and willing to do anything. I think every church has a Jody in it. Well, every church also, in this session did, has a Dave in it. And the Dave in this church had just retired. He's moving towards 70. Um, he hadn't smiled in decades. He was angry about everything, and no one really knew why. And no one liked being around Dave. And, and Dave tried to fix things at the church and just made them worse, you know. Like he, and he, he was the kind of guy who told you why the 
car you bought was a really dumb buy and the way that you're raising your four-year-old is really stupid i mean he just he was blunt he was hard he never like i said he never smiled no one really liked being around dave but he was willing to volunteer for anything so he was on the session so they get to debriefing this experience and they they say yeah how was how was this and everyone's like yeah it was good except they get to dave and they go so dave what was this like for you and dave says you know i agree it was pretty good it was weird but it was pretty good he says, except, except when Jody was looking at me. And then he goes off. And he says, when Jody was looking at me, I felt like she was judging me. I felt like she was belittling me. I just, I just felt awful. Jody was just nothing but judgment. I just felt awful. I felt, I felt terrible when she was doing it. And he just is kind of just spewing this. He's just, I, she just made me feel terrible about myself. And now no one knows what to make of this. And the, all of the goodwill is gone out of the room, and the oxygen is pulled out of the room, and no one can even look as conflict just descends upon them. And poor Jody is sitting in the corner, and she's blinking as fast as she can, trying to keep the tears from coming out. And he's just going off. She was just belittling me. I just felt like she thought she's better than me. And he just goes on and on. Finally, my friend gets a hold of the, the room. He says, Dave, 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 can you, Dave, thank, first of all, thank you. I appreciate your willingness to share this. But I got to say, Dave, we're all just a bit confused. I mean, we're just a bit confused on your reaction. Can you help us understand this? I don't know. She just was belittling me. She just, I, just, I could just tell she was looking through me and judging me. Dave, 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 thank you. Thank you again. But again, can you help us understand maybe why you're reacting this way? And then he was silent, and he was looking down at the ground, and no one knew what was going to happen. Was he going to storm off? What was going to occur here? And then he tried to talk, and he stopped, and he tried again, and he was shaking a bit. And then finally he gathered himself, and he said, no, that, yeah, that's it. And he said, uh, well, I told some of you before we gathered that my daughter, who's about Jody's age, had just moved home with us. And some of you said, oh, is she going to come to church now? Is she going to come to church? And I said, oh, no, she can't come to church because she works on Sundays. But I was lying to you all. She's never worked on Sundays. She's worked on Saturdays, but uh, none of that really matters now anyhow. Um, because, see, the reason that Donna had moved home was because uh, Donna started missing too many shifts at work and couldn't pay her rent. And because, uh, see, Donna really suffers from some really debilitating depression. Um, and none of that all matters anymore anyhow because just just the other day she lost her job. Um, and he says, I guess what it is. I guess what it is is that when I see Jody, I think about who Donna could be if she didn't have the depression. And my friend said, everything changed. Everything changed. He said, Dave was still Dave. He was still hard to be around. But now he was a person. Now they held him. Now they saw him not just as a kind of blockage, hard-headed person, but as someone who was living in a deep story that was broken and he had deep yearnings. He said everything changed. And they had an experience of resonance. They saw his humanity. It wasn't a joyful, just a joyful experience, but it was a kind of experience that connected them together. It didn't accelerate their lives. It drew them to one another. Now, I want to show you this video clip, and it comes from Aziz Ansari. I don't know if you know who Aziz Ansari is. He's a, a stand-up comic, but also was an actor. He was in Parks and Rec. And so this is the end of his, the very, very end of his stand-up, uh, about 
three minutes of it, and it is the strangest ending I've ever seen to a stand-up routine. Uh, there's two things you need to know going into it. The first is that he will reference his grandmother in these three minutes, and he had earlier in the show uh, told us that his grandmother had been sick, she'd been in hospice, and she was dying. So he'll reference that, so be aware of that. The other thing you need to know is that this was in 2019, and Aziz Ansari, um, you can look this up, had been pulled into uh, the Me Too movement, and he had stopped doing stand-up because of that. The situation is a very complicated one, and you can look at it, and by no means is he innocent, but it also is a very complicated uh, situation. But that meant he had not done stand-up uh, for a couple of years. He had, he had not been doing it. So this is his first special since then, and he'll, he'll reference that broadly. Um, so here it is. I think it, it's very informative. Dan, glad you came out tonight. <laughs> I'm glad you all came out tonight. And yeah. I really mean that. I really am very grateful you came, you know? Because, you know, I've done a lot of shows in my career. At the end of the shows, I'd always go, good night, thank you very much. But the truth is, I never really meant it. <laughs> I was just saying that, because it's what you say at the end of a show, right? I mean, sure, I was grateful, but I wasn't grateful enough. I didn't really think about what it means that all you guys came out, but now, I see you guys here, it hits me in a different way. I think about what it means that all you guys, you drove down here, you waited in line, and you did all of this stuff just to hear me talk into a microphone for like an hour or so. And it means the world to me because I saw the world where I don't ever get to do this again. And it almost felt like I died. In the way, I did. That old disease, he said, oh, treat yourself, whatever. He's dead. <laughs> but I'm glad. That guy, he was always looking forward to whatever was next. Oh, am I going to do another tour? Am I going to do another season of the show? Oh. I don't think that way anymore. Because I realize it's all ephemeral. All that stuff, it can just go away like this. And all we really have is the moment we're in and the people we're with. Now, I talked about my grandma earlier. And it was sad. But what I didn't tell you was the whole time I was with her, she was smiling, she was laughing. She was there with me. She was present in a way no other people I've been around recently have been. I tried to take that with me. Now granted, my grandma doesn't have much choice in this matter. But I do. And that's how I choose to live. From the moment I'm in with the people I'm with. Right now, this is our moment, right? Me, you guys, Dan. <laughs> Random lady that yelled, Bunny. 
young Tyler who's scarred for life. <laughs> it's all of us. And this is our moment right now. So, you know what? Why don't we all just take it in for just a second? And on that, I will say good night and thank you very, very much. All right, it's beautiful and very strange, strange way to end it. But it raises some really powerful things. I mean, first of all, it makes us think of what a faith formation really is about, what it means to be in this moment with these people. We often think it's some kind of accelerated form, but really at its core, it's what does it mean to be and live before God in this moment with these people. But to get to that, you need a few things that he illustrates. First of all, you're going to need a moment where you can make a confession. I mean, it starts with him saying, you know, I used to say, good night, thank you very much. Never really meant it. Never really meant it. He makes a confession. And it's a confession that's so deep that it leads him, in many ways, all of Paul, to make a confession of a death experience. I saw a world where I didn't get to do this, where I lost everything I have. I know you all are kind of wrestling with Mark 9, and in many ways, that's Paul's experience. He has a vision of a story he's living out of. He thinks he's on his way to do what he's supposed to do, and he loses it all. When he has the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he loses his whole story. He has to figure this out. And for Paul, he never leaves the fact that when Jesus Christ comes, he comes out of a death experience, that out of loss, the very presence of Jesus Christ comes to you. So Aziz makes a confession of something he's lost that drives him into this moment. And then, of course, he has to take some silence. And maybe a practice we need to take on is more silence with one another. It's so hard to do that, but it's important. But ultimately, it becomes about living in gratitude. And maybe this is the real fruit of a faith formation program that is transformational, is that we live in this moment with these people in gratitude. Both Calvin and Luther said that what it really means to live the Christian life out of the justification by faith alone is that the Christian lives always in a stance of gratitude. Gratitude towards God for God's justifying work gratitude towards the community, um, gratitude towards life itself, because out of death has come life. Um, but to be formed as these people in this moment. And to take us to the end here, I think it does connect with resonance isn't the same thing as faith. It is a kind of action that I think can open us up to faith. But it does show us that what faith is, is not just more and more achievement, but it is really being in a stance to receive a gift. Now, one of my favorite Pauline epistles is 2 Corinthians. I love 2 Corinthians. I love it because of the whole drama behind it. Many of you know this. Some of you know this better than I do. But 2 Corinthians is interesting because Paul, of course, has started the church in Corinth. And Corinth is a cool place. Um, Corinth is not uh, the seat of power in the ancient world. You know, that's Rome. But Corinth is the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Like, cool things happen in Corinth. And Paul has been there. And Paul has started a church on the Strip, 
Um, you know, he has started it with people who work in the industry. Well, of course, Paul goes away because Paul's starting his churches. And while he's away, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, a bunch of new members show up at this church. And they all are in the industry. You know, they work for the Blue Man Group and the Britney Spears show and what's the U2 sphere experience. That they, that, that's what they do. And now they show up to this church that Paul has started. And of course, Paul circulates his letters. So these new members have read Paul's letters and they love them. Like they read Paul's letters and they think, my gosh, this guy is something, and this could play. I mean, he could he could do a residency here. Like, this is really something. That's what they're thinking. Well, they get word that Paul is going to come back through town and visit the church again. And so he, they get word he's coming, and they have a picture, these new member Corinthians, of who Paul is. And they can't wait to see him. They think he is Brad Pitt, <laughs> that they are so excited for him to come. Well, problem is... Paul shows up, and he is not Brad Pitt. He is Danny DeVito. <laughs> and these new members are like, whoa, no, 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 no. What? What? Paul even repeats this in, in 2 Corinthians where he says, the Pauls of the letters you liked, but when I was in your presence, not so much. And he comes like, that, what? no, this can't, this can't be the Paul. They're like, well, okay, well, well maybe, uh, maybe he doesn't look the piece, but he's a great preacher. Then he preaches, and he, they're like, I, I I don't know, three out of five stars? Like, it's not terrible preaching, but it's it's not mesmerizing. So what 2 Corinthians is, is Paul writing back to the Corinthians church after this experience. And I love it because it's an incredibly passive-aggressive letter. You know, Paul does the whole boasting thing. And if you're from Minnesota, you know that we are, that Minnesota nice is actually just a form of passive, aggressi- of passive aggressiveness. So I just get the logic of this where Paul's like, you know, you said all these bad things about me, but if I wanted to, you know, I, 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 I could boast. I could tell you no one's missed more meals for the gospel than I have. No one's been beaten more than I. I could tell you that, but I'm not going to tell you that. I could even tell you that some guy I know has been taken up into something. I could tell you that, but I'm not going to tell you that. And you're kind of like, Paul, you're telling them. You know, like, it's very passive-aggressive. But the beauty of it is that he finally gets to the heart of the letter. And it's his big theological point. And he says, you know what? You Corinthians, you're right. You are absolutely right. I am nothing to look at, and I am an average preacher at best. But don't you get it? Don't you understand? Those are my very ordination credentials. That is what qualifies me to preach the gospel, because don't you ever forget that your God comes into the world beaten and on a cross that this is what it means to have faith, to receive a gift that looks so opposite. But when it comes to you, it transforms you and turns you from Saul to Paul and gives you life out of death. But the only way you can know that gift is if you'll put yourself in a stance to receive it. If you will be in this moment with these people, if you will say thank you and I'm sorry and spend some time in silence together, will you be able to see this gift? Now, final final point and final story is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I can't give two presentations and not reference Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's in my contract. I must do it. Um, 
But Bonhoeffer is, uh, if you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he is a uh, Lutheran pastor and, um, and theologian in World War II era. He actually enters into a conspiracy in the last days of World War II um, as his brother, brothers and brother-in-law are involved in the, the conspiracy to eliminate Hitler. Um, and he's part of that, a spy, and he's killed in a concentration camp in Flossenburg in the last days of, of World War II and is known as kind of a 20th century martyr. Well, Bonhoeffer, uh, his ministry was very interesting. And one of the things that we have remaining from, from his thought and his work were these confirmation sermons that he preached. And he preached a confirmation sermon for a group of 12 young people he took through, through the small catechism and prepared them for, for confirmation in 1938. So it's 1938, and the confessing church that's tried to stand up against the Nazification of Germany has all but fallen. And things look, things look very bleak. And Dietrich's brother-in-laws are involved in, in, the, in the government, in, in the conspiracy, and they know. They know that Hitler is preparing for war, that uh, the attack of Poland will, will happen soon. Um, he's aware of this. And he preaches this sermon, and it is an incredibly beautiful and heart-wrenching sermon. He preaches the sermon on Mark 9 the father who has the demoniac child and pleads with Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And Bonhoeffer says in this sermon to these young kids, he reminds them that in this moment particularly, but in every moment as we confess the gospel, that we always must do it in sobriety. It's never a pep fest. We always do it in humility. And he reminds them through this text, that the only kind of faith we can ever have, the only kind of adjective we could ever throw in front of faith, is weak. Faith is always weak. Not because it's impotent or pointless, but it's weak because it's always the receiving of a gift. But we can never think ourselves able to achieve or earn this gift. We must always just confess to God that we need this gift. So he reminds them the kind of faith that they must have is a weak faith that continues day in and day out to yearn for the presence of Jesus Christ. But then he says something very powerful that I think connects with 2 Corinthians and this Aziz video. He says to them that faith, that it can never be banked. You cannot bank faith. If you try to bank faith, he says, it spoils. It's like manna from heaven. It will spoil. Now, I find that fascinating because most American Protestant congregations are yearning to bank faith. The way they view faith formation is to bank faith. Bank it in our people so when you come to difficult moments, you can live off the accrued interest. Bank it in our young people so that when they go to college, they can live off the accrued interest. But Boniface says that will not work. It will rot. Faith is not of the sort that it can be banked. All faith can be is faith enough to get through today. You can only have enough faith for today. But, of course, if you can learn to have enough faith to get through today, to know the practices, the confession, the gratitude, the being in this moment with these people, then you can get up the next day and find yourself receiving the gift to have enough faith for the next day, and then the next day, and the next day. But there is no grand lock it down. There is only the humility and the confession 
of being with a community of people who live in this moment with these people, bear each other's burdens, and know that in the ministry of one another to each other, that God is present, that God comes always in places of loss and death, bringing life out of it. And we hold each other and remind each other of that. And that's what it's to be formed in a kind of faith that Paul sees in 2 Corinthians. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this community and for the way that they are these people in this moment. Would you continue to give them vision for how to live that, to be that for one another, and to receive your gift that brings life out of death. Amen. All right, I think we are right on time. I may pull a muscle patting myself on the back for being done right on time. Makes me seem like I'm a professional, but it's just luck. Um, let's, I think we were going to take about 10, about a 10, 15 minute at the most break, and then uh, we'll be back here, and uh, I'll, I'll have some questions for you when you come back at, um, at 11 o'clock. Well, it's good for us to, to have this time uh, to kind of pull this together. And um, I told I told um, Andy when yesterday when we talked about this in a way that will probably make my wife nervous. I was like, let's not go up with a plan. Let's not go up with like eight different questions that we predetermined from the beginning. Um, and so uh, we'll just see how this goes, right? And if it feels like we're getting stuck, uh, we'll ask you guys to jump in, or maybe if. We don't feel like we're stuck, but you feel like we're stuck. Jump in, and um, and we'll see what happens with this. But we do have a few things that that we had talked about of wanting to try to flesh this out as we bring it to a close. Um, and the first question I would have, and I guess the first thing I would say is, thank you for being here. This is this is this has been really great. Um, I had the chance to, to meet Andy and to hear him uh, about a year and a half ago as part of my sabbatical and uh, was with a former pastor here of Covenant, Jim Singleton. I was doing some, uh, was spending some time at Gordon-Conwell with Jim and, and Jim had arranged for Andy to come in and it was a pastor's gathering uh, for pastors around New England who were there and I just got to be the token Texan uh, who, was, who was there in the middle of it. And uh, got to hear some of this, what we talked about last night of the, you know, secular zero, secular one, secular two. Um, and it's really kind of fueled a lot of thinking for me, and I know a lot of other people. So really grateful. Um, someone asked uh, when this discussion time was beginning, and I think it's the right place to start, which is, you know, how, how do you define so that we have a sense of what we're going for, what is a resonant experience? Like, how do you know in the middle of it, is this, is this it? Is, yeah. Like, is it actually happening or, or not? Yeah, so um, in some ways you can't know. You just ex experience it. You're just pulled in. So if, you, if you're really interested and you're, you know, really nerdy, which I love nerds, and it seems like there's a lot of nerds here. So, yeah, we uh, love this church. Uh, but there is a big book that, uh, that Hartmont Rosa wrote called Resonance, which is maybe worth reading. But he says that there's four dynamics to this that I think are, are interesting. That you can, I, I can always get bogged down in them, so i just rather tell you stories, which is why um, I kind of did it the way I did. But he says the four dimensions of resonance are one is that you feel a sense of something calling to you. 
um, that you you feel uh, that you feel called out of yourself that you f- you you feel you know you w- look at a painting and it it speaks to you in a certain way it calls out to you but it also gives you a kind of an emotional experience the the hairs go up on on your your arm or the 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 uh, you know uh, on the back of your neck so it has a both emotional dynamic but also a kind of sense of not driving you into yourself but taking you out of yourself if that makes sense so that's two levels he he thinks the others he thinks when you have a, a resonant experience you are transformed that you leave the experience maybe in a profound way or even in a small way, seeing the world differently. But then the fourth dynamic, which is really important, and as a German, he's done this, like, well, you look at Nazi parades, they have those three. There, It's emotion, it calls you to something, to the fatherland, you know, and uh, it transforms you. You're, you're, you're different now, and if you're a young man, you go to the streets and you fight, you wear a brown shirt, you know. But the, the fourth dynamic that holds that makes him almost uncomfortable because he's a sociologist in the critical theory realm and this has a deep theological dynamic though he doesn't always feel comfortable admitting it but he kind of does is that there's a sense of it's being uncontrollable you can't control it that it uh, you can you can be open to it you can create spaces for it so we know throughout the christian tradition that some spaces seem to open us up to experiences of worship or connection with god you sit in the shark cathedral you feel potentially like you you could um be connected to something but you ultimately can't say well if you if you come to this bible study Every week, you're going to have a resonant experience. If you come to worship tomorrow, we promise you at this church, we give you a $100 gift certificate to Amazon if you don't have a resonant experience. You know, you, you can't do that. As soon as you try to control it, you lose it. Um, the uncontrollability is really important. And he has a small book that I think is probably his best little book called The Uncontrollability of the World. And it is really fascinating because he thinks what the modern project is, is trying to get control of the world. And at one level, that's good. It comes out of a good. Like we have certain experiences that are meaningful. So we're like, oh my gosh, being in the mountains is so meaningful to me. What if we created a train that could get us up to the mountains in, you know, 40 minutes? And so the desire to reach the world creates also a desire to control it. And what eventually happens is the very things that we feel like makes us alive and makes us connected, we end up strangling those. Um, and so there is a necessity of how do we live in a stance. This is what I kind of why I ended with the stance of gift and faith being about receiving a gift is how do you, how are you open to un, the uncontrollable? Um, and, and this is a, you can hear, I, I long answers. Um, but there is a sense within, I think, the theological tradition that I'm, I'm trying to work here, too, that is a recovery of what churches need is to remember that God is God. Now, that seems almost as a nonsensical statement, but there's something profound in it. In, one of, in, in the Reformed tradition, kind of coming out of the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, to say God is God over and against kind of German liberal theology was to remind them that God was uncontrollable. Because in the wake of World War I, um, the intelligentsia in Germany, and particularly the theological faculties, had turned God to into essentially a mascot for German nation building. And Bart's point was, no. When you reread Romans, 
God is not a cultural pet. God is God, and God is holy other, that God is uncontrollable. And so there is a certain sense of what it means to be a believer is to sit in a space and to wait on God. And that is very hard for us of what it means to wait on God. But there's something very faithful in that. So resonance is then uncontrollable. You know, it, it actually is interesting. So um, because that that sense of control, when you talk about even the acceleration of technology, I mean, technology gives us a sense in our world of being able to 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 have a degree of control or to feel like we're in control. Um, and there's also, what's interesting is you use like one example of sitting in a cathedral. Um, when you talk about nerdiness to, to, to let my flag fly uh, of that, um, when, when we were on sabbatical, the one trip we took was we, we did go to, to Paris um, as one piece of, of a trip we did. And I had a fascinating conversation with my oldest daughter. We were there because we, uh, uh, Notre Dame had, was not open because of the fire and uh, everything. But we, you know, the cool part about Paris is there's like 40 cathedrals that are just beyond stunning. And we found a couple of them and we just sort of walked in. And um, they love it when Americans walk in and assume we can go where we want to go and, um, and then are mad that they don't speak English. Um, they... And, but we saw some magnificent cathedrals and my oldest daughter, when we were there, Miriam, she was asking, she's like, this is not what churches, I don't feel this, the same magnificence you go going to church. And we had this whole conversation about, about that there's good reasons that if, when we were raising money for Eaton Hall, right, the capital campaign we just finished, if we had said, we are going to spend $40 million to have this awe-inspiring thing when you walk in, there'd be a whole lot of people like, do you know how many how much medical debt can be forgiven for that? Like, do you know how many people can be fed? Like that tension that you sit in, but you do wonder at times, is there a, is there a cost? And so we had this really cool conversation in this cathedral of, but there's also something missing when we don't have these places of wonder that you just walk in and you're overwhelmed by a transcendent, you know, even that idea of that, well, here are the imminent reasons that we don't do it that are really biblical and good. So we can't order up. There's an uncontrollable sense to this. But how do we, and the word I use sometimes is posture ourselves. So how do you, though, begin posturing yourself yeah. in, in life for, because there's like a little bit of a tension there, right? Yeah. I need to, as a friend of mine in college, you say, I have a goal to have no goals. So I, I can't control this, but I need to like, I want this thing that I can't order up. I can't sit there and go, I'm going to go have 20 minutes of resonance and then I'll be right back um, and, and do this. So how do you, yeah. how do you do that as a, as a, yeah. as a Christ follower? Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it is really fascinating because you know, the whole 20 minutes of resonance and then I'll be back. Right. I, I sometimes am a little bit too hard on like Silicon Valley, but I in many ways that is what they do at Google and other places is that you have access to mindfulness exercises and meditation so you can code faster, you know, so you get a break so then we can get more coding out of you. And, and at, at a certain level, that's just how everything's set up. You know, like the reason you should attend to your body, the reason that you should reflect and take a break is so that then you can go faster and that's a really interesting kind of moral vision of what ultimately is good is getting more out of less is optimizing uh, and resonance does asks, asks us to be in a very 
different place in that. But it does mean that you have to take on a very different vision and um, and it will go against against the current in many ways in, in almost every way but part of it is an issue of of observation blindness so um, in in my book the the pastor in a secular age I end with and some of you know this like the experiment you can see this on YouTube that they did um, these this whole group of people who looks at observation blindness as a kind of cultural reality so the experiment is the uh, Dancing gorilla. Have you seen this before? So they ask someone. They come into a laboratory. They look at a screen, and there's people in a circle. Some are in white shirts. Some are in black shirts. And they pass a, ba a pass a basketball between them, and they say to you, "Your job is to count how many times people in white shirts touch the basketball." So that's your job. You're supposed to count that. So as you count that, as you're doing that what happens is someone in a gorilla suit behind them walks through the scene and jumps up and down, and even the cur the color of the curtain, they change the color of it. And it's, I don't have the numbers, but it's something like 80% of people never see the gorilla because they're counting, and they are, they're, uh, because their attention is on the counting, they miss so much of what's in the scene. And in many ways, that's an illustration of what it means to live in this kind of secular age. And the way that both these presentations connect is that we're just driven to be continually counting and being attentive on how do we optimize, how do we grow, how do we meet our goals, how do we go, how do we go, how do we go, that all of these really fascinating, eventful, interruptive uh, human experiences are missed. And so it's not that God is subtle anymore. It's not that God isn't acting. It's that the whole reality we live in uh, leads us to be distracted from it. So the two ways I think, I think there's multiple ways back to this, but one will be the depth of our relationships with one another and to avoid the temptation to allow those relationships to become instrumentalized which is unfortunately one of the ways I think a lot of churches respond to relationships. Things like, we need community because if we have community, we'll get more people to come. We need community because then people will give if they feel connected to community. We need to build relationships with our young people because if we build relationships with our young people, then they'll come to our youth group. That is just a deep temptation in the modern reality is to instrumentalize all of our relationships instead of saying the power is and where God meets us is when we are simply with and for each other for the sake of being with and for each other it's then that we witness to a God who comes near to us in Jesus Christ to be with and for us for the sake of saving us by us participating in God's life so the way we witness to that is by participating in each other's life consoling each other in sorrow, celebrating with each other in, in joy. For the sake of what? For the sake of celebrating each other and enjoying each other. Like to be with each other in that way breaks some of this. Secondly, we'll have to become communities that actually learn how to pray. That praying, which seems like a waste of time, both maybe intellectually and kind of functionally, will be the way to start to observe a deeper and broader horizon. I mean, prayer is the act of trying to see again uh, our way in. So what does it mean to teach ourselves to be taught to pray again? What does it mean for you to ask your pastoral leaders to teach you to pray? 
Um, what is what does it mean to be that that kind of community? So there's a great Eugene Peterson story at the end of his his uh, uh, memoir, uh, The Pastor. He talks about being a young pastor at a church, growing church in Baltimore. And he had gone every Tuesday to this thing called, I think, I can't remember what it was called. It, there was, it was a Tuesday group, maybe. And so they would have another helping professional come in and teach these pastors, like, all the resources available that they could use, mental health resources and other resources that they, they could use. And he said it was really, it was significant. And he used them, and he was very thankful for them. But he said, he w if you're not careful, they form you in a certain way. And they formed him in a certain way. So he got a phone call from a young woman in his congregation who had been hospitalized, and she was ha having some condition, some episode, and he went down to see her, and he said he went in and he put on his hat to fix her. He had his whole metaphorical bag filled with all of these resources that he could fix her, and he said it did not go well. She, they didn't really know what was going on, they didn't know if she actually had a condition or it was just um, kind of psychosomatic reality, and, and he tried to fix her, and it, he just realized he missed something. He went away and he, s he, he thought, uh, I cannot continue to pastor this way. This is, this, there's something amiss. And he got a call from her a few weeks later, and he didn't know what he would do if he got called again, but he luckily got called to her again, and he visited her at home. And he went in to meet her, and he said, this time, I'm just going to be with her. I'm not going to try to fix her. I'm just going to listen and be with her. And he did. And at the end of it, he said to her, is there anything I could do for you? Is there anything I could do? And she turned to him and she said, you know, there is. And I've been thinking a lot about this. Could you, could you teach me to pray? Could you teach me to pray? And he said, that changed my ministry. He said, now what I was about as a pastor was teaching people to pray. And I think if we can be communities that learn to pray and pray with each other, that this becomes a practice that moves us in this direction. And the final thing to say is that we have to be able to be communities, if we're going to be communities who pray, who can have a vision through that, then we'll have to learn to take on as a virtue waiting, what it means to really wait. And we, and I, when I say we, I mean all of us in some ways are formed to hate waiting. You know, like this is, I mean, I'm going to go to an airport and get agitated about waiting. Like waiting, I hate, everyone hates waiting. Zygmunt Bauman, the, uh, the Polish sociologist says one of the projects of modernity was to take uh, waiting out of wanting. So you don't, you know, the, the, the whole goal is to not have to wait for what you want anymore. So, you know, your Amazon droid delivery is coming soon. You know, like you never have to wait for it. But there is something deeply spiritual and formative about being people who learn how to wait. We forget this, um, and Alan can tell you more about this than I do, but um, if you talk to New Testament people, um, what, what is your expert? You, you're a, are you Pauline guy? Pauline X. Paul, well, Pauline X. Yeah, so you talk to an Acts guy, and they'll often say, I'm a Luke Acts guy. I'm Luke Acts. And if you, you can get really confused because they say it really fast, New Testament guys. Like, hey, what's your area? Luke Acts. Like, I don't know the book Luke Acts. What, what's Lu Luke say? And what they're saying is they are Luke in Acts. That's their area. They, they study the book of Luke and the book of Acts because they, Acts is a sequel to Luke. They're together. Obviously, same author. We've dropped John in between the two, but they really, they really go together. And you know how sequels work. Sometimes, you know, when you watch the sequel, it's like it starts with a prequel, like, 30 years before this, or sometimes it starts 50 years after. But some sequels are like pick up the very second after the other one, and that's how Luke does his sequel. So Luke 
ends with the the road to Emmaus experience where Jesus is revealed out of sorrow. He reveals himself out of sorrow to these men and he gives them a command that then starts that starts acts. And we think the church starts in acts too. that that's the command. We love the Pentecost story and we love particularly the line. And then they added thousands to their number. It's like, ooh, that sounds nice. But we forget that's not where the church starts the church starts with the command that ends at luke and goes into acts where jesus tells the men on the road to Emmaus to go back to jerusalem and here's the command go to jerusalem and wait the church starts with the command to wait and to receive the spirit to encounter the very presence of the living jesus christ means to wait and everything in us hates that but it may be the very practice we need. What does it mean to be a community that waits together, hears each other's stories, is with and for each other, and prays as an active form of waiting with each other? Um, so those are some thoughts. Yeah, thank you. It does seem like in community, which we read about is disappearing, that they're, that we're, we're more around each other and yet lonelier. Yeah. Um, can you talk for a second about the correlation of, of vulnerability and resonance? Because, because if I show up in community and, you know, David Hugan's there and my job is just to fix him because he's got stuff going on. And so I'm going to show up, you know, ready to pray for him. Right. Um, we often see ourselves in the Eugene Peterson role. I'm going to show up to the broken person and do this, but it seems to me that there is something for resonance that maybe some of the best leadership in the kind of community you're talking about is the leaders are the ones who are first willing to take the mask off, right? When, you, when we do, we do kind of prayer request time often at our 11 o'clock service. Um, this is not a very biblical analogy, but, and it's actually a funny analogy because I don't know anything about cars, but it's a car analogy and I could be wrong, <laughs> but uh, I always say that when you can always tell when people are sharing in prayer requests, what I feel is like you can feel it downshift mm. when somebody s- has the sense of leading to say, mm. you can pray for me this way, and you can feel the room change, right? Like when the first person says, my neighbor has this, and that's great. We will pray. For, uh, that's, that's legitimate. But when someone in the room goes, you can pray for me, or my family in this way, it 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 changes the dynamic in a room. Mm-hmm. There's a vulnerability mm-hmm. that, to me, there's like a sacred. Like the, the hairs on the back of your neck go up. Mm-hmm. How, how is there a connection between? Because you, you two of your three points were around how we're community together. Mm-hmm. There's also vulnerability in waiting. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a vulnerability as a leader to say, I have an idea. Oh, Let's wait. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I get evaluated every year as a pastor, and there's no point in my evaluation where people are like, God, you wait so well. How well did you wait this year? Gosh, you you did nothing and waited. We're giving you a raise. Right. Yeah. All right, a couple things to say. Those are really, uh, yeah, important and great points. I mean, first of all, the kind of waiting. Waiting, when when you are waiting for a delayed flight... It is the worst. When, you're, when you are just stuck, that is a kind of waiting we want to avoid. Uh, the waiting that I think is 
fundamentally formative and theological is a waiting for something. And the truth is you're always waiting for something. You know, like you're waiting for the new season of Stranger Things to drop. Like you're always waiting for something. And what you're waiting for will form you. Um, and so there is you can't you can't ever really as a human being not wait for something. Um, so I'm waiting for the, the plane to arrive so we can actually get get going. But so I think the kind of waiting that would be faithful that we can look at our, our leaders on is do you wait anticipating God's action? And so you have to wait with a kind of story. Um, you wait with a watchword. How are we watching for what God is doing here? And part of your the leader's job is to help you have a story. But it's not the leader's job to give you the story. The leader's job is to be able to hear your stories, the ways you're encountering the presence of God, and uh, and tell those back to you. And then is there a kind of watchword we we all hold on to? Um, so I know a pastor of a big Lutheran church, and he uh, he came to this church as an associate, and he was in charge of like all the Sunday school and the education. He was just out of seminary when he came, and he was educated and he knew what to do. And he had got everyone trained on how this was going to happen. And he, you know, it was like trickle down. He was going to tell people what to do, and then they were going to go do it. Except he had these teachers of the seventh grade class who didn't take any of his directions. And then he would go and find them in the weirdest places in the church. They would be like in the boiler room. And then he would always find them under the table, like all these se seventh graders in these two, like, 60-year-old adults under the table. And he, was, he thought it was weird. But then he kept hearing these people, they were, they were the, the Jorgensons, they, he kept getting word like from people who were now in their 20s that were there when they were in seventh grade, the Jorgensons were their Sunday school teacher, and they kept on telling them that the Jorgensons call them every birthday and sing them happy birthday. And this guy, Mike, he's like, what? He said, that was so beautiful. And then he thought to himself, I wish they would sing me happy birthday. You know, like he was like really moved by this. So finally he asked him, he's like, what, what are you guys doing? doing because clearly you're great Sunday school teachers and you're not taking any of my advice so what what are you what are you doing and they said oh well, we're so sorry we, you know and I was like no 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 I, I want to learn from you like something's beautiful is happening here and they're like well we're really bad Sunday school teachers I'm like no 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 you're not he's like well yeah I mean we never follow your lessons and they're like we really only have one message we keep telling these seventh graders I said, well, what is it? He says, well, we just keep on saying nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's all we ever tell them every week. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then he asked them why, and they told him this incredible story that they had a son who had some disabilities growing up and had a really hard time through school. Um, they used to tell him every night. They would pray with him and remind him nothing can separate you from the love of God. They saw him through... Um, college, young adulthood, he got married, and then he got diagnosed with cancer and died. And it, the grief they carried of losing this son was so heavy. And everyone knew about the Jorgensons in this situation. And they had lived with this watchword. That was their story. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And it had come out of this deep, deep suffering and wound and, and grief. And so they just kept teaching the seventh graders out of this experience of loss, out of this death experience, and finding God's mercy in it, that nothing can separate for you from the love of God. And Mike heard it, and he's like, that's amazing. And so they started preaching sermons. 
and saying nothing can separate you from the lover. They started saying it at every meeting. Nothing can separate you from the lover. It became their watchword that, that, that held them. They waited for God with the word that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then Mike said after they did that, someone made a banner and they put it up. This is like, you know, the 80s. Put a banner up in the church. Uh, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then they had a mother in their congregation who got sick and they had no idea what was wrong with her. And things became so bleak, she ended up committing suicide. And they think that she had, had Lyme disease or, or something. But all of a sudden, this watchword, nothing can separate you from the love of God, just became incredibly profound. And it just was their watchword that held them on. So the kind of waiting isn't just sitting on your hands and being like, when is this over? It's waiting with a story. It's hearing each other's stories. It's saying, this is our little watchword that encompasses a bunch of stories of how God has met this, this community. But the piece of vulnerability is also can, can really I, yeah. Can I ask you one question yep, about yep, that? Yep. So is what you're saying that, and the importance of story and waiting, mm -hmm. is that as Easter resurrection, nothing can separate you from the love of God. That there's a that, that part of waiting is when I am in situations that that feels hard to believe, mm -hmm. or that feel overwhelming that there is a sense of I am going to wait in that story, mm -hmm. in that story resonating in my mind, and I'm going to choose to believe that that will become evident. Yeah. Is that is that yeah. what you're th – and yeah. that, that watchword, yeah. you know, I, and to pull on the tradition you grew up in, yeah. at least what I was taught about as in a Presbyterian seminary about your tradition, mm -hmm. this may be wrong. But I, it's oh, a yeah. great story. Yeah. Is that Martin Luther, when he would struggle with real darkness yeah. – would touch his head over and over again and say, I am baptized. Yeah. I am baptized. Absolutely. There was, and it could take him hours to, of repeating that phrase. Yeah. That, that to me maybe feels like a kind of waiting you're talking about, Absolutely. which is there's an active declaration, even when I don't feel it, of to wait in the story, believing that mm. there will become evidence of this. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and still in, in the Lutheran tradition, on off, often in churches, not everyone, but there is water at the back that you take the water and put it on your head and remember that you've been baptized. But another example of this uh, is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. When, the, when the, at the beginning of the bus boycotts, when they were not going well, and Martin felt like this was not this Montgomery bus boycott, this was a problem, and he got a phone call. And you remember, many of you remember this story. And on the other line was a threat that they were going to bomb his house. And so he couldn't get back to sleep, had an infant, and he couldn't get back to sleep. And he knew that out of his own power, this was not going well. And he sat down with a cup of coffee, and he calls this his kitchen, his kitchen table experience. He prayed. And he said, he confessed, God, this is not going well. I, I cannot do this. And he said he heard vividly God say to him, Martin, when there's no way, I will make a way. And that became, at least for part of the, the civil rights movement, that was the watchword. Out of no way, God makes a way. And so they would go forward. And what was the civil rights movement? In many ways, it was a form of waiting. That you wait on buses, you wait at, at diner tables, and you wait as an active form of resistance. But you wait with this watchword. When there's no way, God will make a way. Um, so that it is being formed by that story. Um, you can't wait faithfully without a story. And the truth of the matter is you can't be a human being without a story. Even if you don't think you have a story, you've got a story. Um, and of course, you know, like when I get anxious waiting for my flight, I have a story. 
Like Delta is failing me. Why have they failed me? I, I deserve to be at home on time. I, I just, I'm so exhausted. I just need to be home. I want to watch the football games and they start at three o'clock. I should be on my flight watching. Like there's a certain story I have that then makes me very agitated. And so we need a communities to live in, inside of this, this story, this watchword. So it is really waiting with something, waiting with a kind of lens in which we're seeing the world. Um, it is helpful for me, at least, when I think about this idea of resonance and what we do to think about waiting in those senses, right? To waiting with this kind of sense of the story we're in as resurrection people. Um, because so much of life, that story can be, can seem wrong, mm -hmm. right? Or it seems like it's been overturned. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, it did in the resurrection feel like the story had been overturned by mm -hmm. evil and by the world. Yeah. That's that's helpful for me in my in my daily life, and th to be the kind of community where we can we can um, do that together, mm -hmm. which does require vulnerability, right? Like yeah. for for people to know how to claim a story in my life, they have to know my yeah. hopes, they have to know my fears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I. I you can see I just answered way too long. You learn this in dissertation defenses. If you just keep talking, they pass you, right? So uh, so I apologize. But the, the thing about vulnerability... Every sermon for me is a dissertation defense. <laughs> like, just keep going, just keep and, eventually, going and eventually Beth will just, go uh, yeah, right. land the plane. But I think the vulnerability piece that is, is really important is... Um, I mean, one of the ways to think about this, especially as, as late modern people and the kind of faith formation I think we're, we need to be about is what it means, again, in a very different way, but in an important way, does it mean to be a pilgrim, to be on a pilgrimage, and on a pilgrimage together um, in the story we take on pilgrimage. And one of the interesting things about pilgrims in, like, the, the 14th century, like when people were walking to sacred places, is that you, when you did it, you, you always did it, like the, the way that the, the, the French, I'm thinking Jean, Jean Gerson, this, 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 he was a chancellor at the University of, of Paris and then uh, was involved in all this stuff, but he said when you, when you do it, you do it ad diem, to God. So when you walk, you walk to God. But the other fascinating piece about that, so a, a community always needs to be walking together with a watchword, ad diem, to God. But in France at this time, ad diem was also an idiom for goodbye. So when you were leaving, you would say ad diem, to God, goodbye. And I think the parallel here is to be a pilgrim, you have to say goodbye. You have to prepare to die. So when you are actually going to go on this walk and you're going to walk the Camino or you're going to walk the Cuthbert Way and uh, you're a medieval person, when you leave, you may die on the trail. You say goodbye. You say goodbye to people. You're seeking to go to God, but you also have to say goodbye. And I think there's a deep sense in how we live with each other as pilgrims on the way that we do have to live out of how we hold each other in our goodbyes. And that we all have deep goodbyes that have been difficult. Relationships that are broken that we've had to say goodbye to or goodbyes that have been forced on us that we didn't want to. And there is this sense. I mean, in some ways, that's what Aziz does when he says, you know, that I saw, I saw a world where I didn't get to do this anymore. And part of me died. Um, and I think this is the vulnerability piece is either in leadership or just with each other is how do we say, how do we say goodbye? 
How do we tell the stories of our goodbyes and recognize the mystery of faith is that when one confesses their great goodbyes, they find the very presence of Jesus Christ in those goodbyes. That to say goodbye is always ad diem. It is always to God because this God is revealed most primarily in the suffering of the cross. And it promises us that all of our goodbyes will be redeemed, that redemption happens in them. But you have to take on the vulnerability of Paul, like in 2 Corinthians, to, to say, yes, I have known, I have known the great goodbye. And in the great goodbye, in an utter mystery, I have found the very presence of Jesus Christ. So vulnerability can also be used as a power move. Like, be vulnerable so then we can control you. Um, but there is, I think, a holy way of, of being vulnerable, which is to seek for God in our goodbyes and to recognize that to say goodbye is to go to God and to meet God in that. So the kind of double meeting of ad diem is really interesting to me. And if we, if you all as a church are pilgrims on the way with the watchword and the story you're holding to, then you will need, starting with your, your leadership, but all of you will have to find spaces where your humanities uphold, but where you make confessions of goodbyes and know that your goodbyes are always to God, with God, um, that God always moves and ministers to you through those. That's my big wager, is that out of death, God brings life. That's my own watchword, is that when there is death, God moves, that this God is found first and foremost in death, bringing life out of death. Um, that's my own watchword. That's why I tell you the stories I told you, because I feel like there we can point to God, God at work. Um, I think it's really hard to say, oh, God's at work because all this has gone really well. And there is a kind of sense of prosperity gospel that moves that way, or there just is a kind of painting that in a kind of triumphalistic narrative that I think becomes really problematic in late modernity. And I don't want to be defeatist or like a Norwegian metal band and like suffering, you know? That's not what I, I want us to be about, but there's something utterly profound when we share in each other's places of goodbye and hold each other in the midst of that. And I do think throughout the biblical narrative, there's a deep sense that when there is impossibility, the God of Israel shows up. When Israel is in, in an impossible situation, God moves. When Sarah's womb is impossibly infertile, God moves. When Mary is just a 15-year-old, impossible to bear the child the spirit moves that out of impossibility this god of israel moves and it's to remind you that it's not you it's not you who does this god does this god is the one who acts and we get really hard stories in the biblical narrative like first of all we get abraham and sarah i mean the whole thing is set on that and you know abraham has a word that god is going to move that god is going to make him the father of a great nation, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. Talk about waiting, waiting with the story. And Sarah waits with that story, that watchword, so, so long that she's the smart one. I mean, Abraham really is the kind of Forrest Gump of the Bible. You know, like, he's just a little off. I don't know. When you read it, you're just like, this guy is weird. You know, like, people show up, and they're like, oh, she's pretty. Who's that? He's like, uh, my sister. And then they just, like, take her, and then they find out that she's married, and they come back and bring her home, and, like, she's married. And why didn't you tell her? He's like, I don't know. I just felt weird. I just, I didn't know what to say. So I just was like, he's just a very strange human being. And Sarah is the brains of the operation. So she realizes there's a problem, but they trust the word. So she does what's in at least Abraham's legal right, gives the fertile concubine to him, 
And Abraham's like, okay. And then, you know, there you go. Ishmael is here. And Ishmael is 13 years old. He's in your middle school ministry. When God shows up again and says, Ishmael, good kid. I love him. Not the promise. Not the promise. Go back, tell Sarah that the promise will come from her womb. She's nearly 100 years old. It is impossible. Impossible of utter impossibility. And yet the child is born. Israel knows. It is written into their consciousness. This God moves out of impossibility. And just so they will never forget it, we get one of the most difficult stories of the whole Bible. That when Isaac is 13, God shows up again and says, you take that boy up that mountain and you stick a knife in his throat. And Abraham, again, you got to be a Forrest Gump to do it. And he goes, and if you read it through Kierkegaard, his whole momentum is going down before an angel stops it because he had to go all the way in. You know, he had to be, be totally committed to it. But it's written into Israel's consciousness even further. Isaac is born out of impossibility twice. That the word of God self-authenticates itself. That this God does not, is not dependent on human possibility, but only on human impossibility. And that is an incredibly powerful thing. In an achievement society, where you are in competition every second of every day to be the, a self that keeps winning and winning and winning, or as the kids say, takes more W's than L's, to remind you that this God particularly embraces and loves losers is an incredibly powerful thing. That this God brings salvation to the world out of impossibility, out of human impotence, God brings profound salvation is a very different message. And I just, my wager is it can renew us. My wager is that we live it. Um, that the stories in this room are profound of a God who has ministered life to you out of your great goodbyes and that it can feed the church and it can form us all. Well, and then, you know, as we, as we, as we close, I, I think that that brings us back to what we even talked about last night. There's people who have these amazing stories, these encounters with God. Have you ever shared that in church? No. Have you ever shared that with people? No. Um, and that if we can become, because there's a vulnerability in that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a vulnerability in, like, I, I, I think about Mary running back from the tomb, right? It's like, I've seen the Lord. Yeah. Like, she, you know, we think about, like, a couple of disciples listened and ran. The other's like, you're wrong yeah. yeah like there's a vulnerability in that right to go yeah i've had this experience or i'm i'm kind of wondering this thing but it's a great i think sense of what it means for us to go from this place you know seeking to hear those stories and share those stories with each other because those stories and this is the power of testimony are also empowering right somehow i wait in my story is to hear how god's worked over here and to think I can that can encourage me to wait a bit longer and to not do so and give in to cynicism. Right? Of what can't happen. So uh I'm gonna invite Laura Tuma up to close us and uh if you'd one more time join me in thanking Andy Root for being with us. Thank you all.